This week on the Faculty Factory Podcast. Even when you are an associate dean for faculty affairs and professional development, you need to continue to think about your own career advancement. And we were not thoughtful in designing an assessment methodology to determine our outcomes and be able to report them in a manner, as you were saying to me earlier, that it's hard to find places where we publish our faculty development successes. That's right. back to the Faculty Factory podcast. On today's episode, we have Dr. Angela Sharkey. She's the Senior Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at the University of South Carolina School of Medicine in Greenville, South Carolina. She came there from WashU in St. Louis, and you may know her from being the past chair of GWIMS, the group on women in medicine and science at the AAMC. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Sharkey. How are you doing, Angela? Great. Thanks for having me, Kim. I'm so delighted to be a part of this program. Well, we're so happy to have you and we want want to learn from you and I'm sure we're going to be inspired and encouraged. So let's get started. How does a pediatric cardiologist from WashU as the associate dean wind up as the senior associate dean in Greenville? Can you walk us through your journey and how you got to where you are today? Sure, I'd be glad to. When I was a practicing pediatric cardiologist in my early career, I think I was recognized as a really talented and committed educator. And so I was asked to take over the student clerkship in pediatrics along with a colleague in infectious diseases, Cammie McGann. And she and I remained as clerkship directors for so long that the students who we had counseled about their career choices had finished their residency program and their fellowships, many of them, and were coming back as faculty to Washington University. At that particular point in time, WashU had just introduced a clinician track for faculty, and there had not been anyone who had demonstrated success and promotion along that track. So as I had counseled many of those individuals as students, they found me again to ask for advice about how to be successful in their academic careers at WashU. And so um, by building that community of mentees, I was able to develop my reputation as someone who was really interested in career advancement of faculty, in particular clinical faculty. So I was asked by my department chair if I would start an office of faculty development within our department. It seems to me that that construct is something that's becoming more popular across the United States where, yes, there are offices of faculty affairs and professional development within the dean's office, but that work that needs to be done um, can be in a distributed model where you have helpers within departments. Mm. I um, then recognized that their largest uh, non-division of faculty who were on that clinical track and were very early in their academic careers were our pediatric hospitalists. And we actually had 40 hospitalists at that point in time, but they didn't have a freestanding division yet, in large part because they didn't have scholarship to demonstrate that they sort of had the 
construct of what uh, career advancement in academics was really going to be like. Mm. And that group of hospitalists was largely female physicians. So with a really talented colleague from that group of hospitalists, we formed a peer mentoring program as a way of trying to um, embed within those faculty the knowledge and skills that were going to be needed for them to succeed as they moved along their career trajectories. And in fact, that program was so successful that we received some funding from Washington University to uh, spread that program across the entire School of Medicine. I'm thinking, you know, when I hear program, so we're, we're thinking, is this kind of like many of us have leadership programs? So it's like a year-long curriculum where the, the hospitalists would meet every X weeks, and at week number three, you're covering this kind of a talk and topic, and there's a speaker, and maybe there's pre-work or post-work or groups. Can you just kind of walk us through if, if one of your faculty hospitals came to you and said, what's this peer mentoring program I heard about? Can you tell me uh, sure. just basically Absolutely. what it looks like? Great, great question. So the, the, probably the most important lesson I learned in designing this program along with my colleague was that what you think is a great idea may not necessarily be the same thing the people you're having a great idea for will <laughs> right. think is a great idea. Right. So remaining open-minded and willing to adapt your ideas to fit the overall goals of having a program is really important. Yes. What our ideas were for this program is that we would form small groups with a relatively more senior hospitalist, although those individuals were only three to five years into their academic career, mm -hmm. and that those groups would work together on a project that would result in an abstract submission and hopefully a publication. Uh -huh. Well, the, that ultimately is true. Those milestones are important for you to be successful in your academic progress. On the other hand, that wasn't really at that stage of life what those faculty members were interested in. Oh. It turns out that really what they wanted to know is what was it like to work a shift at some of the outreaching hospitals in the communities where they would be spending time? How did they become a director of a nursery in one of those centers? And how do you balance having two young children and a yeah. full-time career? Wow. And so we backed off on our original construct for the program and said, look, let's just build community first mm -hmm. and focus on bringing people together who have similar life experiences and need some advice about that work-life integration. Mm. And lo and behold, by providing a small budget for food, setting an expectation that the receipt would be reimbursed after we received a summary of the meeting and who was present so that we were ensuring that the individuals assigned to the peer group were actually engaging, Right. that nine months into that, they said, well, we don't really have a reason to meet anymore. Ah. And then I came back and said, well, let me suggest this idea. And then they were completely open to the constructs that we had developed in terms of a curriculum and some very specific outcomes and goals that would help them oh. in their career advancement. Wow. That turns a lot of programming on its head. 
I've never thought about it in that reverse order. Because we talk a lot of times on this podcast with a lot of experts around the country who we talk about our leadership programs, and we all tend to agree that one of the most common popular elements or topmost uh, feedback we get is they love the networking and the socializing and being able to get outside of their um, isolated silos and, and meet people who are like them. And so that conversation of building community tends to um, happen throughout a program or we measure it after. You know, the idea is that uh, we're teaching leadership and we're building community. So an, that's like an outcome. I love how you flipped this and said, let's, ba- obviously based on their feedback, we're going to build the community socializing first, creating a safe space, helping them to get to know each other, and then layer on top of that. This is awesome. I love it. Go ahead. It was really helpful, of course, for them to have a supportive leader who was willing to provide the resources and the time for those individuals to get together Mm -hmm. and to encourage them along that journey. Critically, critically important. And then um, we used models that were developed at Penn State and at Mayo Clinic to develop the construct for what our program would look like. Got it. Because those faculty were successful in having abstracts uh, accepted for poster and platform presentations at national meetings, the department chair was so thrilled with that outcome that he uh, made the decision to go ahead and form a division of hospitalist medicine within the department. And that program, which we started uh, now over 10 years ago, is still in existence. In addition to the really wonderful career advancement for those peer groups, the other supportive component we built into the program was the construct that those who functioned as the leaders of these peer groups, those who had been in their careers three to five years, we would have team building and leadership sessions for them. Mm-hmm. So we would get together, we would review the, the celebrations, the successes that mm-hmm. they had experienced with their groups, and we would identify obstacles and then try to work to solve some of those common barriers that the peer groups were experiencing in synergies, in, in moving their projects forward, mm-hmm. and in engaging mm-hmm. those in their peer groups. And then finally, each of those sessions, we would provide some leadership development, for example, time management skills, how to run effective meetings, conversations about promotions and how to navigate the promotions processes Mm -hmm. so that the leaders of the peer groups also realized value by their willingness to participate in the program. Wow, that is amazing. I, I love that. I'm really struck by that starting off with, you know, you know, what you said is just so important. It just kind of hit me over the head here. We, we all know, you know, you step into people's pain and you meet people where they are and, and you listen to the faculty. And yet, like, as you said, many of us have ideas about what programs should look like. So we, we think about it. We know the literature. We've been there. We've been doing this for years. We're a little bit more seasoned. So we think we know. So I love the humility of your saying, now yeah, we went to them and they told us, no, wait a second, time out. That, that's all nice, but we want to go here. <laughs> and then, and then you're, you're being humble enough to say, well, okay. 
and then um, backing up a pace. You know, I, I find myself getting way ahead of, of myself as well, thinking, well, I know what's better for you. You know, I know what's good. I've done this before. And, and I'm trying to be much more sensitive to especially younger generations that we can't impose these models of what we think. So I just think that's really wonderful how you flip that and allowed the faculty to have that free reign in designing the program. And then we're just basically there to support them and, and help them um, solve their own problems. Yep. And I would say the other lesson learned from my perspective is that even when you are an associate dean for faculty affairs and professional development, you need to continue to think about your own career advancement. And we were not thoughtful in designing an assessment methodology to determine our outcomes and be able to report them in a manner, as you were saying to me earlier, Mm -hmm. that it's hard to find places where we publish our faculty development successes. That's right. Well, it's, it's, I think it's, you know, even in, in this instance, and I guess I'll just be, you know, rationalizing why it's so hard for us. And I, and I get into these kind of debates with my colleagues who aren't in this field. They're like, well, just get more publications, you know, just write. What's the problem? And I'm like, well, yep. it's not so easy. And then I make these excuses like we, you know, in, in my gerontology world or my program evaluation world, it's easier to design randomized controlled trials or comparison studies. And you can't really randomize faculty to a program or a time and attention, you know, a pseudo program or, or even sometimes waitlist faculty. So the designs are much more complicated. And then in your instance, Angela, you're designing a program where it was kind of uh, it wasn't structured. It, I can't even imagine you having designed a baseline test to do thus and such when you didn't even really know where you were going with it. You were sure. being you know, yeah, very absolutely. organic. And so mm-hmm. how, do you, how do you design evaluation plans when we have to be able to pivot so rapidly with our faculty groups, depending on you know what's happening at that moment in time? I'm sure many of folks listening can can um, agree that when you may have a curriculum set up and somebody in the class, you know, raises their hand in in response to something and all of a sudden, before you know it, you're, you've gone astray, but it's important that you stay there because all of a sudden the group of, for an instance, in our women's leadership program, when one young faculty member starts crying because she's has a baby at home and a toddler and she's being told she needs to give talks and she simply does not know how she could manage with a baby and a toddler to be traveling internationally uh, to all these conferences and giving talks. And so then all of a sudden, all the other women in the, in the group rally, and we, we're talking about this issue, and it's important. So how do you, you balance that between, you know, how would you measure that outcome when at the end of that session, the women are staying for an extra 20 minutes, half an hour, and they're bonding, and they're supporting each other, and they're forming little little pods of, of groups, and they're making plans to connect with each other. That How do you measure that, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So it is well, and it's fascinating, isn't it, as we think about the demands on our clinical faculty and our biomedical science faculty in this day and age, your tenure track, your non-tenure track, that there are so many competing demands no, no matter which way you slice it. Right. And I think that uh, lay on top of that the generational complexities that we have, families or 
parents who we're providing care for. Um, mm-hmm. it, it is a, a challenging enterprise being right. involved in academic medicine, no doubt about it. So you mentioned just a But that's why we have great faculty affairs and professional development teams to help right. support those faculty, it, right? That's right. It gives us job security and and, and many of us are blessed that we have have been given time and space to think about these things um, regularly. I like that it's not many of our institutions and our deans, as you know, Daryl Kirch rec- recognized that the deans recognize the value of our offices and what we're doing, and and that's evidenced by the fact that many of us are given um, FTE protected time to think about these things and to get in there in the weeds and talk to our faculty and, and come up with innovative, creative ways of, of helping and support our faculty and faculty success and ultimately our patient, you know, health of our communities and population. But you did say something. So you mentioned of- your women in medicine program. Yeah. I'm curious if you'll tell me a little bit about how you are focusing at your institution on the advancement of women in medicine in particular. Oh, I'd be happy to, yes. Yeah. So, and I'm mean, going to want to get back to what you said about um, our own professional development because it is, I, I, you did make that jump over to South Carolina. So, I definitely want everybody to understand how that opportunity came up and happened for you personally. But uh, briefly, at Hopkins, we, under our Office of Faculty, we have an Office of Women in Science and Medicine, which is headed by our senior associate dean for women, who is Dr. Barbara Fivish in pediatrics. And she mm-hmm. established that office, oh my goodness, uh, maybe maybe 12 years or so ago, maybe more. And she immediately started by uh, offering a leadership program for women faculty who were a little bit more like mid-career. And I think that came off the heel, heels of her, Dr. Fivish, having participated in the AAMC early career, mid-career opportunities. So she designed this uh, year-long leadership program for women, and then uh, the mid-career women. And then, of course, the question was, wait a minute, we need something for early career women as well. Uh, so she uh, backed up the train and then also built a program for early career women. And then two years ago, after she participated in ELAM, uh, came back home to Hopkins and created an executive leadership program for senior women. So we have currently at Hopkins three year-long longitudinal cohort programs for women, and we've published on um, two of them now, I think. I think we have two publications on both of her, the early and mid-career women's and competencies around leadership so we've had really um, longstanding success with those. And Dr. Fivish also heads up the gender equity uh, initiative we have. She keeps an eye on faculty salaries and women's issues. She was involved in creating the first ever university, Johns Hopkins University, patern- um, child care leave policy. We didn't have a maternity, paternity, child care leave policy, if you can imagine, no policy whatsoever. So... Uh, she was involved in that initiative of, of getting childcare leave, um, women in leadership programs. So she has a couple committees working on advancing the status of women into uh, leadership and all search committees and um, having a presence and making sure we try to get more women represented in leadership. 
And oh, there's something else. Oh, she offers a series of luncheons and speed mentoring programs. I think I've hit all the things for the women. Um, pretty strong. Yeah, so now strong I'm thinking presence. all your. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. So now I'm th- I'm thinking now all the listeners are jealous that they don't have an office for women that allows for that same attention and um, fa- wonderful programming that's offered. It sounds terrific. Yeah, and, and I know and, Dr. And, Five should be happy to talk with anybody about it for sure. Yeah, and, and she served as a member of the steering committee for the Group on Women in Medicine and Science at the AAMC at the same time I did. She's oh. a tremendous advocate for women, absolutely. That's right. Very talented lady. Yeah. It, and it, I think in those institutions where you don't have an office specifically focused for women, there's still opportunity to collaborate with your faculty affairs deans to ensure that some of the attention to things you mentioned, like family-friendly policies and salary equity and parity in terms of your search processes are all embedded as a part of your institutional culture. And and for me, um, when I was at St. Louis University, it was really important for me to work with my parent institution, so the undergraduate university, because women across all of our colleges and schools um, are impacted by these same issues. And uh, building consensus across the academic enterprise can help raise the voice, literally, um, to a higher level. Well, you're right, Angela, and and that's you're raising a really another really important point that for everyone listening out there, oh, geez, I wish we had an office. Well, geez, change starts one person at a time. All it took was for Barbara. Not all it took. It was it certainly wasn't flipping a switch, but it takes just one person who comes back home having been inspired or encouraged by attending a conference, meeting with colleagues, to come back home and say, hey, wait a minute. And you start beating that drum and you start going on the listening and learning tour and you start, you know, with the elevator pitch and you start collecting data and you start spreading seeds of interest. And I wonder about this. And I'm curious if women make the same amount of money there. And I'm wondering, I noticed that this many women are here and not so many women there. It just takes, I mean, a concerted effort by someone who just says, I'm going to carry this mantle and it, you just bring it home. And before you know it, you know, you, you're, you're leading that effort. So um, you're exactly right. That stuff happens. You know, it's rare that, well, sometimes I guess from the top down, a dean would come back and say, listen, we need, well, like our dean came back and said, burnout is a big issue. He went to an AMA conference in Chicago a few years ago and said, we need to tackle this. We need to do wellness. And Boom, now three years ago, three years later, we have a chief wellness officer. So I guess that change can come from the dean down. And many times it's also faculty who are listening right now saying, you know, by gosh, we're going to get one going and I'm going to be the person to lead it. So you just decide that that's what you're going to do and you get your stakeholders together and um, you make some, you, you know, you work hard and that's what can happen. Well, and I think, Kim, you and I both know from working with faculty over a number of years that you, you have to find your passion and that allows you to have your voice to whatever stakeholders will listen and um, recognize that there's value add from those voices that come outside of the dean's office, right? And can bring forward opportunities for our universities, for programming, for new offices, for the needs of um 
of the constituents, that is our faculty, our students, and our patients. That's right. So So that kind of leads me to my academic affairs role, so my own professional development, if I can say. And and, um, so I was... um, I had the opportunity to present with several other faculty affairs deans at the annual GFA meeting, and I was presenting with them on various leadership programs that we had at our home institutions and really how we defined leadership and what characteristics and traits we sought in leaders. And um, it was at that seminar that somebody approached me and said, we are looking for leaders like you. And I was looking for another opportunity at that point in time. But I have to say, I was missing being closer to the students. I had been working with faculty at that point in time for over 10 years. And and I am a big believer that... Um, Lifelong learning includes lifelong professional development, and that that certainly has been a way for me to maintain my energy and academic careers over time. So um, I was approached about the opportunity to take on this role in academic affairs, and what I saw that as is a perfect blending, really, of the recruitment retention and career advancement of our faculty, but also aligned with overseeing our curriculum at the school here at the University of South Carolina School of Medicine in Greenville. And um, it just has been so refreshing to have a different scope of responsibility, some different um, competencies that I need as a leader in this role and uh, to advance my knowledge around medical education and innovation in medical education in this era of technology where we're trying to figure out the future role of faculty if our students aren't going to come to the classroom. Then then what do we do with that time and how do we engage our learners effectively? Um, So I would just say to others who are involved in faculty affairs and professional development to um, embrace lifelong learning as a way to advance your own professional career over time. Yeah. Well, how did, can you share with us some of those competencies you felt like you had um, opportunity to develop or you saw in yourself that geez, I really want to learn more about that. Um, You know, we get to a certain point in our careers and we think, well, all right, I've I've learned these things and um, have a pretty good handle on leadership. I know my weaknesses. I've had 360s done on me. And and I'm curious how in your stage of career, going to a really senior executive position, uh, how you were able to recognize these, these opportunities and weaknesses perhaps and turn them around to be strengths. (laughs) Great question. So I believe that, um, first of all, that the vision that I saw for the school here was part of what drew me to this place in particular. And um, coming to a new school presents all kinds of opportunities for you to create and refine and do continuous quality improvement. Not that we can't do that in a more established environment, but the nice thing for me here was that the ship I could steer pretty widely still rather than navigating within the Panama Canal, for example. Hmm. And so it's given me the opportunity to really um, 
again, create, and, and I derive a lot of energy from creating. So where do I see the, um, the opportunities or the skills that I brought to the job that I recognized I had was that creativity piece of it, that big vision and moving forward. And I think that for me was part of what I was ready for having um, built skills and confidence in those skills as a leader over the last decade. And um, where do I see that there were unanticipated challenges? Moving's a huge undertaking, and people should not take that lightly. When you've been established in a community for a long time, it takes a while to get settled in a new place again. And your pace of change is is pretty dramatic for the first two years, at least. How long have you and been I've at talked to other friends. Um, I was there for 19 years oh. before I moved. Yeah. And I've talked to other friends who have moved for leadership roles. And, um, and people had said to me before I moved that it takes about two years to get settled. Some people tell me it takes as long as four years to really build your team mm-hmm. and be able to feel like you now uh, are settled and are ready to move forward your own priorities. <clears throat> And at the, it, it's just been wonderful, as I said, really invigorating. I've really enjoyed that. So you don't feel, I mean, it, when you said just two, two years, I kind of thought, ah, um, because I'm so impatient. But I assume you're going to tell me that the <laughs> leadership, you know, there in South Carolina reassured you that, listen, Dr. Sharkey, we know this, the things you want to do are not going to happen in three months, right? I mean, please tell us and reassure us all that, you didn't have people breathing down your neck, that we're not in the industry where you need to produce uh, a week later, that they understood that there sure. was this kind of ramping up time, right? Yes. Well, and the other thing that was really good for me is that I went through all of these processes, like onboarding, for example, as someone who was being onboarded. And that gave me great insight into working with my faculty affairs dean and with our Uh, chief of medical affairs to be able to say, here's how we might want to think about doing some things differently. Here was my experience. Let's talk about it. Did we have the medical school front and center in everybody's mind as they were coming into our institution? Did they hear about the opportunities there were for research or to work with learners Mm. or to find time to take vacation? And how do you book yourself out of the office? Mm. And so that um, was a great way to learn about the organization and to establish my first low-hanging fruit, right? The projects that I could accomplish within the first three months. And then I set aside time to do develop a strategic plan, working with my team and our faculty and the school to establish what were our success factors to this point, where are we now, in our school, but also in the industry of healthcare and research and scientific development within our organization, and what are what's our vision of where we want to be five years from now, mm. and and build your team around that common vision of where are we all going, and and let's make sure we're all rowing in the same direction. And some of us may have faster rudders than others, but let's just make sure we're all rowing in the same direction has been really an important part of gelling the team and having them come together to work together to make progress for our organization. 
Can you offer any insight into this 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 notion of vision that you you keep saying vision and and you know we all we all know this, but I, I'm imagining you having going to Greenville and having conversations when you were contemplating this career move. How do you, how do you make sure? Or how would one know if their vision, their own personal values and their own personal vision resonate with an alien, a foreign institution's true <laughs> vision and values? Can you, can you think of any uh, experiences or observations you had when you were there? Did something like kind of hit you in the gut? Was it a gut instinct of like, yes, this this feels good to me, or was it something somebody said that you you thought about and had to see how it fit? Uh, could you maybe give us a little insight into this vision experience for you and knowing that these pieces and parts were going to click together and that this was a fit for you and for them? Mm-hmm. I I think that the most important factor in determining for me that I was going to mesh with this organization was that there was an intentionality about the language that we use to express our values and our vision and the intentionality about cultivating the um, culture of our environment. And so that is lived out through a construct of conscious professionalism, um, a a willingness and an agreement that we will all approach each day with curiosity. When someone brings you an idea that is counter to your own, rather than saying, that's not what I think, we try to and agree to approach with the question, I'm curious why you see it that way. What is it about your perspective that results in us viewing this differently? Mm. And therefore, you might arrive, lo and behold, at a more brilliant solution that is, in fact, something either of you didn't think about or the two of you blend your ideas to have an even better construct moving forward. So it was that intentionality uh, and commitment that I saw within the organization was that was, as you say, the gut punch that made me say, yeah, this is the place I really want to be. That's great. And the really good news for me is that when I um, live day to day here, that culture that was espoused is in fact here. Mm. Yeah. And so that would be the part I guess I would say to others who may consider, am I ready for a change? You need to really understand for yourself, what is it that you fundamentally care about and want to define as your legacy? Mm -hmm. And is that organization going to help you move closer to that vision, goal, and legacy or not? That's right. And be honest enough with yourself to say, I'm not seeing it here. Mm. or I am, or I believe that the people who are recruiting me share my vision mm-hmm. or like my ideas enough that they'll be willing to get behind where I think we're going. 
and right. and move that direction with me. Mission alignment. That's right. We have to be aligned with. That's one of the markers that you know, Tate Shenefelt talks about for burnout. That if you know, if you're not spending approximately 20% of your work week or your effort engaged in things that bring you passion and that are near and dear to your heart. And as you, you know, you talked about passion and values, uh, you're more likely to, to burn out. So I think that that mission alignment and, and there's literature showing that the younger generations are even more conscious of working for organizations and institutions that have a true true values and community engagement and involvement and and live the mission and so that it's even more imperative that we're conscious of that alignment and 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 knowing and being as you said being honest when something's just a little bit misaligned and then being um being forthright and saying well can i live with this for a minute for this season uh and how far astray is it going to take me and mm-hmm. is it going to bring me joy? And those hard questions of, you know, balancing, um, you know, academic uh, careerism with true, you know, values and integrity and in, in who you are and what, what you want to be. That's that's a challenge. And I think that it's, you know, you're, you're very fortunate to have found that alignment. But that, I think, is, is the the truth right there is you you're not chasing titles or institutional glamour rather um, and focus on the career and adding another line in your CV, but rather doing the things you love and that you're passionate about that will ultimately get you the success because you, you know, if you do what you love, you're going to get there rather than just doing things for the, the career. Well, and as you pointed out, if you don't, enjoy what you're doing, if you don't have interest or passion for what you're doing, then every day is an awful lot of work. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And our institutions certainly don't make that work easy. So, (laughs) yeah. So did I, I know you've always had a longstanding interest in, you know, you talked about the clinical track and, and women. And is this, uh, this passion, has this translated to Greenville? Absolutely. The opportunity that I had to participate in the steering committee for the WMC was really a powerful um, experience for me because it not only helped me network with a group of really talented uh, women faculty across the country, but also allowed me to, um, to help frame a strategy for how to engage women in academic medicine across our country. And I um, find here in Greenville that our group on women in medicine and science, um, like many others, is challenged by our busy schedules, both at work and outside of work. And the common theme, I would say, is the focus on career advancement. And once we've begun to have conversations about how do we, as a group, work across our departments and across the school and the clinical learning environment to make sure that we're making our activities of daily living into scholarship. And we're making some real progress in that regard. So I'm thrilled for that opportunity here. Um, 
yeah, I think that's enough. Yeah, we we have a a course that we offer at Hopkins along those lines of turning your everyday clinical activities into scholarship because you're exactly right. That's the when you have clinical faculty who are running a hundred miles an hour, constantly seeing patients, trying to generate the ever you know present RVU you know, acts over their heads, and then spending pajama time in the evenings charting in Epic and, and you know, tr- being told they have to get grants and write papers and build programs and get promoted and serve on committees and, you know, be a good, um, a good community member in, for the institution. The, the pressures are incredible. So we, we try to help faculty uh, see opportunities for this is you know scholarship isn't an add-on or something else it's let let's find ways or help you find ways to turn what you're doing right now into scholarship and still they're like well what does that mean so we're just finishing a two-year trial balloon if you will called the epic faculty scholars program and that's using epic data the electronic health record at hopkins we built this program for $110,000 a year where we support 10 teams of investigators. They have to be at least 60% effort as a clinician. So they're busy clinicians. So most of them are 70 and 80%. And then uh, they submitted a proposal for what they want to explore in Epic Data. And we surround them like a wraparound services of folks who work with the Epic Data, database managers, statisticians, uh, literature search, people from the library, writing, editing staff, mentorship. Uh, we have writing workshops. And the idea is to help them hone down their clinical question. Then we work with the Epic folks to pull those data out of the database and merge them with other data databases or whatever you know the clinical question is. And then working with statisticians to design uh, pull the right data to an- to answer the question appropriately, and I'll be presenting one of the one of the posters this year at in Chicago, looking at the results of that program. So, like you, Angela, we are um, very um, have a our thumb on the stresses and the uh, struggles of our clinicians at Hopkins, trying to help them a increase their you know scholarly footprint by this program. And also, um, Hopkins just uh, passed at our advisory board of medical faculty for the you know first time in in history. I guess it's my understanding that Hopkins was the last standout medical school in the country that only had one research one promotion track, and yeah. uh, one, and that's it. And we just um, started a new clinical. Um, excellence promotion track. So now Hopkins is officially the School of Medicine, a two promotion track system. And as you can imagine, that was an incredible lift that uh, that our Dean Paul Rothman um, spearheaded with our senior associate dean for faculty, Dr. Cindy Rand, really pushed hard to move very quickly, collecting data, making the case, looking at our peer institutions to um, allow a new a transparent pathway for promotion because many of our clinicians said this is just impossible. I mean, how in the world can we do this? So we just passed it, and now we're, of course, trying to figure out the implementation stage. What does this look like? We right. figured out the criteria and all that. But 
So like right. you, Angela, it's it's we're working hard to really um, lift up our clinicians and help them find ways to navigate their careers in academic medicine. Well, congratulations. That's an incredible feat, right? And and welcome to the club with the rest of us. <laughs> How does it work? How does it work at Greenville with promotions and clinicians? It. So it's interesting because we are affiliated with the University of South Carolina as our parent institution, we are 100 miles from there, and we are actually the second medical school of the University of South Carolina because there's also a school in Columbia, Mm -hmm. and each unit gets to develop their own promotion criteria. And so there has been honestly some advantage to us from the standpoint of our clinical faculty, because we do recognize that teaching and clinical care are their primary commitments. And then research is the the more secondary commitment here, as opposed to at an institution like yours. And so um, for us, that has been part of the startup of the school was determining what are the criteria that we will use to promote both tenure track and non-tenure track faculty. But to date, we've been very successful in help facilitating moving our faculty forward. Right. I think one of the challenges we have here, and I think other institutions do as well, is that for our clinical faculty, at times they wonder, why does it matter? I'm so busy seeing patients, documenting an epic why should I take the time to prepare a promotions packet? Right. right. And uh, for me, it was that I wanted to be able to be a professor so that I could get the little uh, half glass moon glasses like Professor McGonagall wore in <laughs> the Harry Potter movies. Because for, to my children, that's what a professor really looked like. Oh, I, uh, I want this sweater with the patches and I want to smoke a, uh, a pipe. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, we're that for us as a relatively new school is still a little bit of a work in progress in terms of helping those understand. Now, the other thing I would say um, that has been a real opportunity for me in my role because I am sitting in the chairs with in the meetings with the department chairs and the president of the hospital is to raise awareness of the um, roles that are assigned as leadership positions within the organization that have educational value and those that have financial value and raising the consciousness and awareness that if women are not offered opportunities to be in those roles where they're dealing with financial matters, then it's less likely that they will become our future chairs of our departments. Right, Because when you look to the skill set of the department chair, it's research, mm-hmm. uh, personnel, financial management, mm-hmm. and then maybe clinical care or other attributes, right? And, and um, this is where I see it. We have continued opportunity is to really think about the fact that we have many women who are in educational leadership roles, but fewer who are in the, that space of talking about budgets and uh, collections and billings and so forth. Uh-huh. That makes me think of what what one of my colleagues, Dr. Dave Usum, he is our uh, associate dean for professional development, and he designed two 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 day courses. So 
they're separate courses, but they're both two days long. One's called the Economics of Clinical Operations, and one was How to Build Your Academic Clinical Practice. And he has an MBA as well as being a neuroradiologist, but that was exactly his motivation. He said, you know, I, I meet these faculty and they have no idea how the money flows or what mm-hmm. the you know equivalent of their of an RVU is and and how their directors are thinking and how how their salaries are determined and how you bill and so he just said this is you know we have to bust open the doors faculty have to know how the institution and the school uh, functions and how why this matters and how to read these financial statements and these forms and and I'll tell you he, he we opened those courses up and people just just flew to them. So that was, um, you know, I totally agree with you that we can't expect women, especially to, uh, get into these positions when they're not exposed to, uh, this content and how else would they get it? As you said, if they're running Mm -hmm. around like with chickens with their heads cut off, trying to just keep their head barely above water, uh, very few of them might just take the you know take it upon themselves to go take coursework and figure out how to understand academic medicine finances. So uh, I think that is valuable for us to think about. All right, well, where are the gaps, and let's try to close those gaps for all faculty, and you know teach them how to how it how it's done, and to still provide work life integration oh. and career satisfaction. Right. That's that, that we had um closing session of my junior faculty leadership program last week and that's a co-ed program that we offer in the office of faculty development separate from the women's programs because again this is co-ed and i'm hearkening back to the the last day the last hour we had a panel presentation of recent graduates uh from the junior faculty leadership program there there are five of them and i think most of them had graduated the year before and we had maybe one or two from the prior year but i my goal was to bring other assistant professors or just barely associate professors into this this last class so that the the participants in the current program could say are these are people who are just a minute ahead of you you know they're one or two rungs ahead of you in the ladder and what were their experiences and they they asked the panelists you know we last time we were here our the vice dean for faculty Janice Clemenson talked talked about you know work life integration and somebody asked her you know, what's your work-life integration look like? And she laughed and she said, well, don't look at me. I'm not, I'm not a good role model for that at all. I, you know, I, I'm, a sci- I'm a basic scientist and I work every weekend and my husband's a scientist and he works as well, but we love it. And, and so she laughed and that's kind of the, the joke with her is that she's just this consummate basic scientist and loves her work and, and, mm-hmm. and she loves to work. And so she said that, but then after the class was over and everybody left, this one participant said, you know what, I've, I was having anxiety that whole session because there's just no way the message to me was to be a vice dean. You're basically working seven days a week. And he's like, I just, I, I don't right. know how I can do it. I'm freaking out. I'm freaking out. Right. So the last right. session when those panelists were there, they were actually, I kind of brought that question up to try to encourage the participants that, listen, wait a minute, you know, maybe the vice dean for faculty is not the person you should be listening to about work-life integration. Let's talk to people who are here. And so I posed the question to them. And that's where the real rubber met the road. And and the advice was just, you know, what we all, you know, hoped and would pray they would say is that, you know, you're in different seasons of life, different things happen. You know, you have to know that this is not a race. It's not even a marathon. 
because there's no end. There is no finish line. This is, you're setting habits now that will determine the rest of your life. And so you have to make the decisions where you're going to set your boundaries. Um, you're going to have a, a child or children and building a family and, you know, a grant's coming up. You know, you're just going to have ebbs and flows. And you have to make sure that when you have those periods of downtime that you schedule, you know, the things that bring you joy. And you always, every day, make sure you're you're building that in. So there's a lot of good advice about that and just what you're talking about, Angela. And it was so refreshing to to see the the young folks telling the other young folks that that's that's how it is. So I'm like, okay, good. They're getting it. They're getting it. And and in fact, some of our participants said, Kim, this was the best session ever. Just hearing from them, and I thought, well, geez, that's going to make the next you know iterations of this easier if I could just have panels of uh, graduates coming right. and just talking to them because they just loved hearing from their you know their more slightly more senior colleagues. Well, and I think to your point that it's absolutely true there are ebbs and seasons in life. And the fact that my children are grown, successfully launched at this point gave me the flexibility to consider a move, a major move, um, which was more about my career and my life than it had anything to do with them. And that's the first time in the last 28 years I've made a decision without really thinking about the impact it has on my children. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, and so there's a whole different construct that you reach, hopefully, someday in your life, should you choose to use that framing as a basis for how you answer some of the questions about considering other career opportunities or career advancement. Yeah, and you're right. And I just I can't help but think of women. And I'm sure you have 100 stories, Angela, of, of women coming and being given opportunities uh, maybe young and they're you know early in their career mid careers and they're thinking about their partners, so maybe it's not even kids, but when you especially a lot of academics you know they're they're two career academic families and so it's even mm-hmm. more of a challenge. And we we certainly you and I know the literature of you know women you know making decisions or not making decisions or not negotiating or not asking for they want for what they want and um, need basically, you know, deferring to the partner's career. So that's a whole other, you know, challenge for us as leaders to make sure we're, we're helping our women faculty um, speak up and advocate for themselves and be bold in thinking of, and thinking about themselves first versus the tendency to always put ourselves last or bottom of the list of things to do. Sure. Right. Yeah. Yep. And I think another challenge that we face in academic medicine now is the fact that, again, people are having to resubmit grants. And so that it just the time it takes to be become successfully funded, the number of patients that you have to see in a half day session in order to build sufficient RVUs, the pressures that we feel in that way impact both genders. And with um, with the construct that we have in medicine, where if you're a woman physician, you're more likely to be connected to a partner who is um, going to need to transition with you and who is also working adds complexities to career advancement and, again, considering career opportunities oh. moving forward. Exactly. And, and all of that is a part of your value system. Okay. that you weigh mm-hmm. as you make a decision to take the next move, whatever that 
looks like for you based on your own passions and opportunities. And I think that um, that there are some of us who tend to be a little more risk averse mm-hmm. than others. And being willing to take some risk in taking that next step, whatever that looks like for you, is uh, opens a lot of doors. That's right. It really does. That's right. And that's where, you know, the, the coaching, you know, all the literature on coaching now, we just put a publication out with my colleagues, Rachel Levine spearheaded that program, and we just published an academic medicine on coaching versus mentoring. And so, you know, that's where that incredibly valuable skill set or having people in your life who will um, sponsor, you know, that's what I meant to say sponsorship, a sponsorship yes, paper, yes. sponsor <laughs> you to be on committees or give talks and, and and mentoring you, but and coaching you. I had a junior faculty member in my office just this afternoon who uh, said, you know, you know, strictly confidentially, I, I am being recruited by other institutions. And my goal right now is I'm just going to, you know, collect information and see what they can offer me, but I'm not going to, I don't want to negotiate and I don't want to enter into competitions and I don't want to pit one against another and I don't want to pit them against Hopkins and I don't want to do all that. And I said, you know, I'm sorry to tell you this. I said, but you darn well better do that. And, and she was shocked. And then after I told her and the, the whole, all the books, you know, the women don't ask and, and all the literature that shows that women don't do that well, I got her around the bend for her to realize, I said, you know, it is it is ugly and it is hard and it is having difficult and crucial conversations and and nobody likes to, you know, be confrontational or or to be challenging or talking about money and resources and there's a lot of emotional baggage in that kind of stuff. I said, but you know what, I'm happy to rehearse it with you. I'd implore you to put a matrix together, look at these things, and don't be shy about comparing and, and asking and evaluating. And she, she, I could just tell that she was stunned by the whole fact that she was, first of all, being recruited, but then secondly, by overwhelmed, as she, you just described. What she's, like, she's a busy clinician. She's like, That's a, this is another a part-time job. I don't have the time or the energy to do all that all that negotiating mm-hmm. stuff. And I said, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. I'm telling you, this is you are, this is one shot when you go new to a place where you really have to go in um, with all the data. I said, you, this is your prime opportunity. So that's, I think, our obligation as leaders and in our roles to um, help encourage junior faculty members, especially women, to find that power and to, to find the courage to do those, those tough things. And to take the time and energy to reflect on the opportunities that present themselves to you, rather than necessarily seeking them out over and over and over again, Mm -hmm. right? Being intentional about what is it that you want from the universe and and how is it going to, how are you going to facilitate that coming to you? Mm -hmm. I think um, Mm -hmm. it does take a lot of time and energy to look for a new position, right? It's not to be underestimated how much it does add to your already busy schedule. So I appreciate that about your colleague recognizing that that it would be that commitment to move forward and considering an opportunity. And at the same time, you you know, you got to figure, is it a part of your passion and what learning opportunity is it going to offer you Mm -hmm. to consider that? role in that position. 
because learning is energizing. Right. It's worth worth considering every now and then a change just to make sure that you're at the top of your game always. Yeah. And I think what you said earlier is, is to me a, a crux of this is that if you are certain about your values, your core values, you know, what is important to you personally, deep in your gut, in your heart, you know, what do you value? And then once you're certain about that, and you spend some real hard soul-searching time discerning those values and and making sure they're carved on your heart, then those decision points where you are perhaps being enticed by something that's not appropriate or not aligned with your mission or not in keeping with who you are, it's easier to make the decision because it's... It's more apparent. No, it's not aligned with my values. And so I think, you know, what you said earlier is that understanding your values and uh, your vision, that's that's core. And that's where the whole self-knowledge comes. And that's why I think it's another important work that we do in our offices of faculty development is, you know, knowledge of self, you know, knowing who we are. You know, Aristotle, knowledge of self is the beginning of all wisdom. And so that's what we try to do is help our faculty you know who are you really you know spending your whole career busy doing 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 and achieving achieving and achieving and it's there's a lot of value i i no pun intended there's a value in stopping for a minute and saying well wait a minute what is it do i value if someone were to look at me they would they be able to tell me you know what i value by what i'm spending my time doing mhm yeah yep absolutely and these are all the good questions we get to ponder when we're in faculty affairs and professional development roles, right? You're right. Well, this has been a great pondering session, and I feel like we could talk for hours, and people listening are probably like, all right, you know, all right, Kim, shut up already. We, this is this is great. We're going to hear more from Angela. <laughs> but I think this has been really good, and I've been so in- inspired by you, and and I really like your vision. I like the, t- the the focus on vision and intentionality and curiosity and this concept of conscious professional professionalism. That that really made a lot of sense to me. And I especially love how you flip that that concept of letting, allowing, you know, the humility and being humble and allowing your faculty to tell you what kind of faculty development they wanted for the for the um, peer mentoring program. So this is great yeah, stuff, Angela. Absolutely. Is there anything else you'd like to share with uh, the community before we I, sign off? I just really appreciate the opportunity to be a part of the program, and thanks for your, your time, Kim, very much. All right, everybody. This has been Dr. Angela Sharkey in Greenville, South Carolina. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.